This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is growing in the knowledge of truth. In the first half, Hal B. Heaton shares his address, Truth. Then in the second half, Trenton L. Hickman speaks on weaknesses into strength in our search for knowledge. I would like to talk to you about a subject that you may think you know a lot about, truth. I'd like to base my talk on a number of scriptures that talk about truth. The first is in John 18. There's a key question in these verses that I always found curious. Christ was tried before Caiaphas and then brought to Pilate because the Jewish Sanhedrin did not have the power to sentence anyone to death. After some interchange, his accusers told Pilate that Christ claimed to be king of the Jews, a crime of treason, but not the crime Caiaphas was concerned about, which was blasphemy. Pilate asked Christ if the accusation of treason was true, and Christ explained that his kingdom was not of this world and added that everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Then Pilate responded with an interesting question. What is truth? A few years ago, you all watched the news as President Clinton's problems with Monica Lewinsky unfolded. What was curious about the event to me was that both sides of the argument had the identical facts. One side looked at the facts and said, Clinton is a flawed but great leader. The other side looked at exactly the same facts and said, Clinton is a liar and guilty of a felony and should be thrown out. What was the truth? It was the same set of facts. The point is, the truth is not just a set of facts. Truth has something to do with your attitudes and philosophy and the way you have have of looking at the world. Note that in verse 37, Christ makes a very curious statement. He indicates that we must be, quote, of the truth, unquote, to really hear his voice. I think he is in reference to this point about truth being more than a set of facts. You have to have the right attitude, value system, and be somehow of the truth, as the scripture describes, to understand truth. The second scripture is found in John 8. The chapter begins with a woman taken in adultery. Immediately following the incident, Christ says, He is the truth. The Pharisees argue, but then Christ goes on to talk about how you can know truth and how knowing his Father is really the only way to know truth. He then makes another very curious statement. Verse 30, As he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Several years ago, I was a Ph.D. student at Stanford University and was teaching in the MBA program at the University of Santa Clara, a Jesuit university. The leaders of the school were Jesuit priests, and I can honestly tell you they were some of the most insightful people I have ever met. At the same time, there was a national controversy going on about the feminist movement. A very outspoken feminist in the Church, Sonia Johnson, for those of you who may have heard her name, 
was attacking the church and its leaders bitterly. She went through an, an excommunication hearing. All of the national news media were gathered around the church building where the bishop had asked her to come in for the hearing and were very upset they weren't allowed into the hearing with a bishopric. The National Organization of Women wanted to provide lawyers to help her argue her case with the bishop. She was ultimately excommunicated. Soon after the excommunication, she went around the country giving speeches. She came to the University of Santa Clara, gave a speech, and then had a question-and-answer period following the speech. One of the young students in the audience stood and asked, It must be hard to leave your church. Now remember, this is roughly a Catholic equivalent of BYU. How did it feel? Sonia gave a fascinating response. She said she reacted differently than she expected. She felt free. Huh? See, before she had to believe God was a man. Now she was free to believe God was a woman. Before, she had to believe her salvation depended on a man, Christ. Now she was free to believe anything she wanted to believe. She was exhilarated. She felt free. I thought about that response a long time, and I had trouble reconciling it with Christ's concept of truth making us free. And then a thought hit me. Truth is terribly constraining. You see, if 2 plus 2 is 4, then we are not free to believe that it's 5 or 10 or 103. Only one right answer is terribly constraining. You can believe anything you want, but on the other hand, if you want to be free to build a rocket that is capable of flying to the moon, then you'd better believe 2 plus 2 is 4. Without that terribly constraining nature of truth, We cannot be free to do anything. In high school, I did my homework. I didn't slough class. I was terribly constrained. A lot of kids laughed at me and others like me because we didn't have any freedom. They had freedom. They sloughed class, didn't have to do any homework, smoked, drank if they felt like it. We didn't have freedom. We only did what we were told to do, according to them. It is interesting to look at the same issue several years later. I graduated with a good GPA, a scholarship, and was faced with a big choice of schools to go to and a wide selection of majors. As time went on, I worked hard and had freedom to do anything I wanted to do. I was constantly faced with a bewildering set of choices. I had more and more freedom to do more and more things. Some of those who thought I had no freedom in high school, didn't graduate from high school, couldn't get a good job, couldn't afford a house, couldn't go back to school because they were earning so little they didn't have enough time or money, over time they had less and less freedom. I am sure they feel very trapped today. The same is true in the gospel. Doing what you are asked to do may seem anything but freedom. But you see, God gives us commandments because he wants us to be free. Suppose you knew a child better than the child could possibly know himself. And you knew that the only thing that would make the child truly happy would be to, say, uh, become a neurosurgeon. 
What would you tell the child to do? Go to school, don't slough, take the hard classes, get good grades. Terribly confining stuff. But did you give him the commandments to make him miserable? No, you gave him the commandments because you knew that the only way he was going to be free to achieve the greatest possible happiness and to do what he really wants to do, if he only knew it himself, was to follow your rules. It is the same way with God. Truth may appear to be irritatingly confining. Think of the BYU dress and honor code. Other schools look at us and laugh, just the way my friends used to look at me and laugh in high school. Now the greatest agony of my high school friends, who thought they were free, is knowing what might have been. I believe the greatest agony of mortality and eternity is knowing what might have been. Note that the LDS version of hell, outer darkness, is only for those who knew the truth and rejected it. Knowing the inexpressible joy which might have been and never experiencing it again can certainly be expressed as the agony, which is very much like being in eternal torment or, as the scriptures often put it in a metaphor, burning. Don't go through the agony of knowing what might have been when it's too late. Learn the truth now. Obey the truth. And I promise you, and more importantly, the Lord who knows you better than you know yourself also promises you that you will have a happiness so great, so awesome, so far beyond anything you can imagine, you simply cannot comprehend it. If you really understood that truth, you would sacrifice anything, everything, to achieve it. Understanding this truth is central to your purpose for being on the planet. I want you to imagine yourself as a missionary. You've just been made a senior companion and you have a new greenie who barely speaks the language. You've been teaching a young mother and her two small children. Her husband is not interested and has not been meeting with you, but she and her children have been attending church and have developed a deep testimony. They love the members and the joy that the church and the gospel bring into their lives and have accepted the baptismal challenge. One Sunday you go to church and she is not there, even though she promised you a couple of days earlier that she would be. You are concerned that she might be ill, and so after church you go to her apartment. She meets you at the door and does not appear to be ill. You chat for a minute and ask if you can come in. She reluctantly lets you in the door. After a couple of minutes of chatting, you ask her why she wasn't at church. She looks down and says nothing for two minutes. Two minutes can be an eternity without a word being spoken. In a broken voice, she weeps and says that if they go to church anymore, her husband will leave them. Now, I want you to think for a moment about what you will say. I hope you realize that there is not a memorized dialogue learned in the Mission Training Center that you can roll off the end of a glib tongue and expect it to solve the problem. There is no canned approach you've learned in some university class that will work. In fact, 
What might be exactly the right thing to say to one person in that situation may be exactly the wrong thing to say to another person who appears to be in the identical situation. There is only one way you can know what to say. Someone who knows that person and that situation better than you could possibly know or understand has to tell you what to say. The wrong words have the potential to destroy the life situation of that mother and her children. The Lord, through His Spirit, has to tell you what to say. That means you have to be able to hear what the Lord wants to tell you. And that takes a clear channel between you and Him. That means that you have to be clean and pure and able to hear His voice. You have to be, quote, of the truth, unquote, in a very real sense. One of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis. He wrote a set of children's books called The Chronicles of Narnia, which reflect his powerful Christian beliefs. In one of these books, a selfish boy is transformed into a dragon, but still has on his bracelet that is way too small for a dragon. He couldn't get it off, and it hurt terribly. In this part of the book, he is recounting the story to his friend Edmund. I should note that the lion in this series of books represents the Christ figure. Let me read. Well, last night I was more miserable than ever, and that beastly arm ring was hurting like anything. Is it all right now? Eustace laughed, a very different laugh from any Edmund had heard him give before, and slipped the bracelet easily off his arm. There it is, he said, and anyone who likes can have it as far as I'm concerned. Well, as I say, I was lying awake and wondering what on earth would become of me, and then... But mind you, it may have all been a dream. I don't know. Go on, said Edmund with considerable patience. Well, anyway, I look up and see the very last thing I expected. A huge lion coming slowly towards me. And one queer thing was that there was no moon last night, but there was moonlight where the lion was. So it came nearer and nearer. I was terribly afraid of it. You may think that being a dragon, I could have knocked any lion out easily enough, but it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it, if you can understand. Well, it came closer up to me and looked straight into my eyes, and I shut my eyes tight, but that wasn't any good because I told me to follow it, and I knew I'd have to do what it told me, so I got up and followed it. And it led me a long way into the mountains. So at last we came to the top of a mountain I'd never seen before, and on top of this mountain there was a garden, trees and fruit and everything. In the middle of it there was a well. The water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must undress first. I was just going to say I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on, when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things, and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, thought I. That's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling. So I started to go down in the well for my bath. 
But just as I was going to put my foot into the water, I looked down and saw that it was all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as it had been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means I had another smaller suit on underneath the first one, and I'll have to get out of it, too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, Oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin, just like the two others, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep, I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the ground, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I'd no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything. But only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. To understand truth, we must be of the truth. To be of the truth, we must be clean. To be clean, to shed our sins, we must repent, and repentance requires Christ. There is no other way. This is part of what Christ meant in the 8th chapter of John, we were just reading from, when he said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. When our first son was born, I was overwhelmed with the love that I felt for Ryan. I also felt it again with my other children. This love was fundamentally different than love I'd ever felt before. You see, I love my wife deeply for who she is and for all she does for me. I love my parents deeply for who they are and what they have done for me. They deserve my love. They have earned it. Ryan was a newborn. He kept us awake at night. I didn't know him. He needed constant attention. He was sometimes crying and fussy. He didn't deserve to be loved. He hadn't earned it in any sense of the word. And yet, I loved him, and still do, so intensely, I would do anything to help him. God feels the same love for us, even if we feel we don't deserve it. 
I believe that developing this love for someone who doesn't deserve it is part of our essential experience in this life if we are to achieve our purpose in life. I believe that is why the Lord feels families are so important and that love should be based on something other than selfish gratification. The Mormon religion is fundamentally different than other Christian religions. Ask people of other faiths if God is our Father, and they usually say yes. But ask them if God is also the Father of cats and dogs and cows and horses, and they will also often say yes for exactly the same reason. He created them. When we say God is our Father, we mean something fundamentally different. We believe He is literally the Father of our spirit. We can become like Him. And as powerful as the love is that I feel for my children, it pales in comparison to the love God has for you. And I feel that my experience as a father provided me with that understanding better than any other means could have. That is truth. Your experience here at the university and life in general will provide you with truth if you will approach the Lord for understanding. Sometimes... Things must be experienced to be understood. I remember an experience I had on my mission. I was assigned in the mission home and received a call from a missionary newly arrived in the field. He indicated that he wanted to go home right then. The mission president and his wife were unavailable for a few days. I asked the mission secretary to go with me, and we drove down to the little Swiss village where he was stationed, and I went tracting with him while the mission secretary went tracting with his senior companion. We tracted farmhouses, and so we had a long time between houses to talk. After talking about missionary work and life in general, the missionary was feeling okay about staying on. Our conversation turned to him. This missionary was different than most. He was much older because he was a convert. He converted while he was a soldier in Vietnam, and then he went on a mission after he returned home from the war. He talked about his experiences, and at one point he talked about being on reconnaissance and shots being fired. He and the soldiers in his patrol dove off the road to avoid the shots, and he heard explosions all around him. The Viet Cong had placed landmines around and then used gunfire to get the soldiers to jump off the road. He talked about seeing one of his buddies literally blown apart. He became choked up. There was silence, and finally I said, I understand. I remember that he looked at me, and he said, No, you don't. There is no way you could understand. You had to be there. You had to feel it to understand. And you know, he was right. Sometimes the Lord makes us go through difficult experiences because there is no other way to understand the truth. Sometimes we have to go through pain to understand pain. But it is the gospel that will provide us with the right attitude and perspective to understand. Without the gospel, some people only learn bitterness or anger from these experiences. We have to be, quote, of the truth to understand the truth. We can have the same experiences, the same facts, but have to be of the truth to understand the truth. You may feel terrified sitting in front of the young mother as a missionary, feeling helpless, not knowing what to say. 
But if you are clean, you can feel the Lord's love for the person you are trying to help, and your confidence waxes strong, not because you are perfect, but because you can feel the Lord speaking through you, and you know He has the right answer. You are merely the vehicle He uses to help this family. He knows the truth, and you will know the truth, and it will set you truly free. Of this I testify, and I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Growing in the Knowledge of Truth. We've just heard from Hal B. Heaton. After the break, we'll return with Trenton L. Hickman for Weaknesses into Strength in Our Search for Knowledge. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Growing in the Knowledge of Truth. Next is Trenton L. Hickman, an associate chair and an associate professor in the BYU Department of English at the time of this address, titled Weaknesses into Strength in Our Search for Knowledge. I am grateful for the opportunity that the administration affords me to speak to you today. I'm particularly grateful for the friends and family that have gathered here to support me and uh, for the special privilege of having my mother and father, Larry and Kathy Hickman, here with me today in the audience. So much of what I've been able to become is due to them. In the next few minutes, I hope to make the case that both you and I have been given, through the grace of Christ's atonement, the chance to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost in our reading, writing, and speaking in ways that will open our eyes to new knowledge and to better ways of thinking about the challenges that beset us. For me, one of the most intriguing chapters of the Book of Mormon can be found in Ether 12, as Moroni pauses in his translation of the Jaredite record to catalog the many miracles which occurred because of faith put into action. Partway through this list, Moroni seems to face a crisis of his own faith, at least as it touches upon the future reception of the scriptural record that he is creating for an audience in our day and time. He writes, And I said unto him, Lord, the Gentiles will mock at these things because of our weakness in writing. For, Lord, thou hast made us mighty in word by faith, but thou hast not made us mighty in writing. For thou hast made all this people that they could speak much because of the Holy Ghost which thou hast given them. And thou hast made us that we could write but little because of the awkwardness of our hands." Behold, thou hast not made us mighty in writing like unto the brother of Jared. For thou madest him that the things which he wrote were mighty, even as thou art, unto the overpowering of man to read them. Thou hast also made our words powerful and great, even that we cannot write them. Wherefore, when we write, we behold our weakness and stumble because of the placing of our words. And I fear, lest the Gentiles shall mock at our words. 
As an English professor whose own work focuses on 20th century and contemporary American literary history, several aspects of Moroni's concerns interest me. First, Moroni's sense of our time, that it would be an era characterized, among other things, by mockery, strikes me as unusually perceptive. Ours is indeed an age whose dominant mode is that of irony. On the heels of two world wars and many other regional ones, in the wake of some of the worst genocides in history, in the aftermath of countless scandals in politics, business, and even in religion, irony emerges in our day as a kind of cultural defense mechanism, a way of acknowledging that since things are rarely what they appear to be, then nothing should be taken without the proverbial grain of salt. In our day, we luxuriate in an unprecedented omnipresence of information, but paradoxically distrust this information more than ever because of its potential for manipulation or deceit. Also, the ability today to simulate reality has become so good that we live in a state which cultural critic Jean Baudrillard famously termed, quote, the generation of models of a real without origin or reality, a hyperreal, perhaps even, quote, the desert of the real itself. Under these conditions, some in our time allow cynicism to convince them that we have no way of knowing anything for sure, and many now frame the word truth in scare quotes to signal, even at the level of punctuation, a suspicion of the very notion of truth itself. In such a climate, conspiracy theory too often triumphs over systematic intellectual inquiry, and humankind, with its seemingly infinite capacity for what Pulitzer Prize-winning author Marilyn Robinson calls, quote, self-befuddlement, can, quote, generate ideas that, however potent, are really, truly, and at very best, worthless, end quote. Such is the widespread societal confusion described by Isaiah and quoted to us again by Nephi of our present-day world as, quote, a dream of a night vision, where it shall be unto us even as unto a hungry man which dreameth. And behold, he eateth, but he awaketh, and his soul is empty. Or like unto a thirsty man which dreameth, and behold, he drinketh, but he awaketh, and behold, he is faint, and his soul hath appetite, end quote. In an era like ours of existential disappointment and disillusion, of cynicism and confusion, why wouldn't irony and mockery reign, not just as an avenue for humor, but as a paradigm for making one's way through life? Second, Moroni's notion that our age, perhaps more than those which have preceded it, would focus on weaknesses in writing and upon flaws in language generally seems especially prophetic. Early in the 20th century, certain lines of inquiry in linguistics, philosophy, psychology, and cultural studies converged in their views about how language worked and to what degree it was determinative of human consciousness and agency. For a variety of reasons, investigators in these fields increasingly realized the inherent arbitrariness in the words and other symbols we use to represent the concepts we want to relate, and saw in that arbitrariness the capacity for miscommunication, misreading, and even for misdirection. If this flawed language was perhaps constitutive of even our most basic sense of the reality we inhabit, 
How could we trust words to carry truth in the ways that earlier generations had imagined were possible? To some degree, I see this dilemma anticipated in our own eighth article of faith, which states, We believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly signaling a recognition on the part of the Prophet Joseph Smith that even scriptural language, especially when passed from one person to another through the ages and subjected to the process of translation, or in some cases mistranslation, could lose some of the power of its original signification along the way. Finally, Moroni's worry about the placement of his words, that they would cause him to stumble in his scriptural prose, hits at the heart of my writerly self, as I, too, have often worried about the same thing. I suspect that you students have all felt this, too. Perhaps late at night, your brain fogged by a lack of sleep and the stupor brought on by too much junk food as you try to finish a paper for one of your classes. Take that worry and magnify it many times over as you imagine the pressure on poor Moroni struggling with his translation wondering how he might possibly capture the power of the original Jaredite record in his own clunky, reformed Egyptian, knowing that his eventual audience might make fun of whatever words he chose. Thankfully, for Moroni's sake, the Lord offers him consolation through a formula that we, like Moroni, would do well to understand. And when I had said this, the Lord spake unto me, saying, Fools mock, but they shall mourn, and my grace is sufficient for the meek, that they shall take no advantage of your weakness. And if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto men weakness, that they may be humble, and my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. Behold, I will show unto the Gentiles their weakness, and I will show unto them that faith, hope, and charity bringeth unto me the fountain of all righteousness. In his answer, the Lord signals several truths to Moroni. First, he underscores the importance of weakness, in this case, both of readerly weakness and writerly weakness, in bringing Moroni and his eventual audience to a key choice whether or not to choose humility as an opportunity to exert faith and to learn. Moroni, it would appear, needed to be humble and meek in accepting that his writing was always going to need the Lord's grace to work correctly as scripture. Moroni's readers need to be humble and meek in not taking advantage of his weakness, one likely found in the scriptural writing itself and perhaps also in Moroni's briefly faltering faith that his writing would do what it was supposed to do when the time came. Once humility is in place for all parties, enabled by the grace of Christ's atonement, then both Moroni and his audience can exert faith so that weak things can become strong for all involved, especially if those receiving Moroni's words are filled with charity, which will enable them not to take advantage of his weaknesses. In 1906, my great-great-grandfather, Josiah E. Hickman, then head of the physics department here at BYU, addressed in a speech the importance of faith in discovering new knowledge. A portion of that speech was reprinted in the student newspaper, The White and Blue. Columbus believed the earth round, 
Stevenson believed vehicles could be drawn by means of steam. Morse believed that thought could be flashed over wire by the aid of electricity. Marconi believed thoughts could be broadcast without a tangible medium. Joseph Smith believed that God could and would reveal himself. A faith in all these unproved realities, accompanied with action, became household truths of a startled world. Faith is the harmonious struggle of all the powers of the mind towards knowing some unproved truth. Without it, man becomes dead to the future and turns idolater to the present. How does the grace of the Lord enable our faith and help us to know truth and to avoid, as my great-great-grandfather said, becoming dead to the future and an idolater to the present, especially since those of us gathered here today have devoted significant time and resources in the pursuit of true knowledge? Moroni himself gives us the answer in the final chapter of the Book of Mormon, in what we often call Moroni's promise. And when ye shall receive these things... I would exhort you that you would ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true, and if ye shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. And by the power of the Holy Ghost ye may know the truth of all things. While we know this scripture first and foremost as the invitation to read and study the Book of Mormon and to learn that it is true, what Moroni outlines here, especially in the final sentence of his promise, frames a pattern for how earnest seekers of knowledge about a wide variety of subjects may be led to truth time and again. The pattern of humility, of faith, and of weak things, in this case, our weakness of knowledge, being made strong unto us by the Spirit, is echoed over and over in the scriptures. For he that diligently seeketh shall find, writes Nephi, and the mysteries of God shall be enfolded unto them by the power of the Holy Ghost, as well as in these times as in times of old, and as well in times of old as in times to come. Wherefore, the course of the Lord is one eternal round." We're even told that the knowledge of truth is inseparable from the Spirit, as we read in the Doctrine and Covenants that we quote, We're also in the beginning with the Father, that which is Spirit, even the Spirit of truth. And truth is knowledge of things as they are, and as they were, and as they are to come. End quote. If the acquisition of knowledge is an act of humility and faith on our part that is powered by personal revelation from the Holy Ghost, then we need to do all we can do to take full advantage of the gift of the Holy Ghost in our lives. About one month ago, I had the privilege of baptizing and confirming my youngest son, Isaac, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ. As part of his confirmation, I told Isaac, just as those of you who have been baptized and confirmed have been told, to receive the Holy Ghost. I believe that when we receive the Holy Ghost— we not only receive a gift of a constant companion who can steer us to good choices instead of bad ones and can help us avoid temptation and danger, but we receive a powerful teacher who can guide us to new knowledge that we can contribute to the world. How many of us have truly received the Holy Ghost as we were enjoined to do at our confirmations? At the semi-annual general conference of the Church in October 1958, Joseph Fielding Smith 
then president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, made the following observation and offered the following caution. However, it is my judgment that there are many members of the Church who have been baptized for the remission of their sins, who have had hands laid upon their heads for the gift of the Holy Ghost, who have never received that gift, that is, the manifestations of it. Why? Because they have never put themselves in order to receive these manifestations. They have never humbled themselves. They have never taken the steps that would prepare them for the companionship of the Holy Ghost. Therefore, they go through life without that knowledge, and they have not the understanding. Now, the Lord would give us gifts. He will quicken our minds. He will give us knowledge that will clear up all difficulties and put us in harmony with the commandments that He has given us and with a knowledge that will be so deeply rooted in our souls that the knowledge can never be rooted out. If we will just seek for the light and the truth and the understanding which is promised to us, and which we can receive if we will only be true and faithful to every covenant and obligation pertaining to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In my own imperfect experience, this process of humble and faithful inquiry leads to inspiration and knowledge about many things, even solutions to problems I have faced in my professional life here at BYU. These are undoubtedly some of the gifts to which President Smith refers. One thing that people outside of academia, and often even students at universities, don't know is that when professors undergo a bid for tenure, it is an all-or-nothing proposition. Either professors earn tenure, or what BYU calls continuing faculty status, and have a nice measure of job security, or they do not earn tenure, which results in their dismissal from the university usually after another year given to them so they can secure another job elsewhere. Thus, while the reward of tenure is high, so is the risk, and so is the stress of getting there. In my pre-tenure years, I worked assiduously to shore up my teaching, my publication record, and my service to the department and college so that I would meet the standard when the time came and so that I would establish good habits for my post-tenure career. In one particular case, I had the opportunity to publish one of my essays in a book by a prominent university press. But while the initial drafting and submission of the piece had gone smoothly, I struggled with getting the revised essay just where the editor wanted it. To make matters worse, I had a long professional relationship with the editor of the book, and so my repeated failed attempts to successfully revise the essay to meet the reviewer's expectations embarrassed me as my friend had to tell me that the essay still wasn't where it needed to be. If I couldn't revise the essay to the reviewers and the editor's satisfaction, he explained, it would not be included in the book, and the project would move forward without my work in it. Finally humbled, or perhaps compelled to be humble by the humiliation of the process, I did what I probably should have done long before. I knelt down in my office and prayed for Heavenly Father's help asking that the Spirit would impress upon my mind what I needed to do to make the necessary changes to the essay so that it would be publishable. When I finished my prayer and sat back at my desk, I experienced what I think Joseph Smith meant by pure intelligence flowing into you and sudden strokes of ideas from the Spirit. I had concepts coming into my mind as if a faucet had turned on in my brain. 
and I raced to jot down these ideas before they were lost. Subsequently, I moved around entire sections of the essay, incorporated some new information into it that I hadn't before known existed, and generally shifted the tone and tenor of my writing in keeping with the promptings I received. The editor was astonished at the revision and accepted the essay without any subsequent changes. It made it into the book, one which now sits on my shelf as a tangible reminder of an experience that was entirely more unusual for me than it should have been. Is it strange for a professor to pray over the literary history and criticism that he writes? How is that different, finally, than when Amulek admonishes us to, quote, humble ourselves and to cry unto God over our fields, yea, over all our flocks and over the crops of our fields, that we may prosper in them? I do not know to this day Heavenly Father's specific opinion of my interpretation of Theodore Rutke's poetry and its place in the development of American poetry in the middle of the 20th century. What I do know, though, is that he cares about me and that he cares that I be able to disseminate this knowledge to which he led me in the service of my family, my department, and my profession. I testify that he likewise cares about you and your pursuit of knowledge, and he will open your eyes to new ways of thinking about the intellectual challenges you face if you will allow the Spirit to provide you the revelation that you need in your sphere to advance your work. I have found that the Spirit can also give me the knowledge and language that I need in unexpected, even extemporaneous moments where I need to be wise beyond my own previous capacity. Recently, I was reminded of something that happened to me as I presented my research at a national conference held during the same period of time as the first presidential run of Mitt Romney, himself an alumnus of BYU and a member of the Church. As you can probably recall, Romney's religion, its doctrines, and its practices were at the center of public discussion in an unprecedented way. As I sat down to an evening banquet at the conference with many of my colleagues from universities across the country, two graduate students at my table saw Brigham Young University on my name tag and proceeded to relate a number of things they'd heard about the Church on a particular comedy show that, despite the show's reputation, these students found completely credible. (laughs) They finished their all-too-lengthy anecdote with a pointed question for me. We heard that Mormons wear magic underwear. Do you wear the magic underwear? I had not expected, at least at an academic conference populated by well-educated, open-minded professionals schooled in the humanities, to be asked such a question so bluntly and with such a lack of respect. I looked quickly around the table to see if my colleagues would rescue me, perhaps jumping in to point out the obvious impropriety of such a question at an academic banquet. Though I could tell that several of the professors weren't comfortable, they all turned and sat silently blinking at me, (laughs) apparently waiting for my response. No one was going to let me off the hook. I was going to have to find a way to be true to what I believed without making myself look like a fool in front of the people who I admired but who lacked almost all context for what I could tell them on this particular subject. Like Moroni, I didn't want to be mocked for the clumsiness of the words that I might choose. The Lord tells us in the Doctrine and Covenants, Therefore, verily I say unto you, lift up your voices unto this people, 
Speak the thoughts that I shall put into your hearts, and you shall not be confounded before men, for it shall be given you in the very hour, yea, in the very moment, what ye shall say. I swallowed hard, and then spoke the words that came to my mind. I told these students that I was pretty sure they were referring to my temple garments, and that just like many Orthodox Jews wear prayer shawls under their clothing to remind them of promises that they make to God about how they should live their lives, I too wear clothing that reminds me each day of promises I have made to God about how I will conduct myself in my daily decisions. I told them that from my experience, any magic that my temple garments impart to me is simply from the blessings I receive for living the good life that I told God I'd live. Finally, I asked those at the table, after a slight pause, do any of you want to talk about your underwear? (laughs) People burst into laughter at my question. The graduate students seemed appeased, if not a little ashamed, by the seriousness and attempted generosity of my answer to their inelegant question. Then, one by one, professors around the table talked about Mormons that they had known and admired. Truth be told, I was relieved when the discussion shifted to another subject entirely. Still, I will always be grateful that the Spirit gave me the knowledge and the words that I needed in that precise moment so that I didn't embarrass either the Church or myself in front of my colleagues. Sometimes I think individuals might mistakenly think that following the promptings of the Holy Ghost will curtail rigorous academic inquiry and will keep their scholarship sequestered in a provincial prison of what has already been thought and proven safe. To really think new thoughts, they might erroneously reason, we need to free ourselves from the tyranny of commandments and faith, pressing boldly into areas of intellect to which faith has previously blinded us. In my experience, nothing could be further from the truth. Don't we believe, finally, that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen? In my view, faith always involves humbly asking that the Spirit take me from what I know into what I haven't yet discovered, wherever that takes me, strengthened by my belief. Indeed, all Latter-day Saints should celebrate the ongoing process of restoration and revelation, as outlined in the Ninth Article of Faith. We believe all that God has revealed, all that He does now reveal, and we believe that He will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the Kingdom of God. Since the Doctrine and Covenants instructs us that the Kingdom of God concerns itself not just with what we might think of as spiritual matters, but also with, quote, things both in heaven and in the earth and under the earth, things which have been, things which are, things which must shortly come to pass, things which are at home, things which are abroad, the wars and the perplexities of the nations, and the judgments which are on the land, and a knowledge also of countries and of kingdoms, then the Spirit has many fields of inquiry that are white and ready to harvest by a scholar with a humble heart and a sharp mind. For me, having the Lord make weak things strong unto me as my faith meets intellectual inquiry is a process that I hope will someday culminate in something like what happened to the servant of Elisha in the Old Testament. You'll recall that the Syrian king was exasperated that the Lord kept revealing Syria's military strategy to Elisha, 
who wouldn't turn pass it along to the king of Israel to aid him in foiling the Syrian enemy's plans. In retribution, the Syrian army surrounded the city where Elisha resided with horses and chariots, hoping to eliminate Elisha as the source of heaven-sent reconnaissance once and for all. Elisha's servant, upon seeing the huge army hemming them in, despaired and said to Elisha, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And Elisha answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Ultimately, faithful intellectuals, ones who know that humility is not a liability but an asset, that faith is not a set of blinders but an eye-opening experience, and that the gift of the Holy Ghost is not a coward's crutch but a courageous revelator of the truth of all things will see that the grace of Jesus Christ enlivens and informs every corner of knowledge that we can discover, blessing us and those with whom we share what we learn. I'd like to again quote from Marilyn Robinson, this time from her novel Gilead, where an aged pastor close to death reflects on how the Lord can open our eyes to new knowledge if we will let him do so. And I quote, It has seemed to me sometimes as though the Lord breathes on this poor gray ember of creation and it turns to radiance for a moment or a year or the span of a life. And then it sinks back into itself again. And to look at it, no one would know it had anything to do with fire or light. But the Lord is more constant and far more extravagant than it seems to imply. Wherever you turn your eyes, the world can shine like transfiguration. You don't have to bring a thing to it except a little willingness to see. Only who could have the courage to see it? End quote. It is my hope that we will have the humility, the faith, the charity, and the willingness to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost necessary to be able to see our respective corners of the world shine like transfiguration in our own intellectual and academic inquiry. It is likewise my hope that we will have the Lord's help not to stumble on our words and that we will have the courage to see what needs to be seen and to say what needs to be said, however unpopular the view and however it may disturb the received logic of the time in which we live. May we ever pursue true knowledge, eventually finding for ourselves in the journey that all truth, indeed, is part of one great and eternal round, capacious enough to explain all the mysteries of the universe. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Growing in the Knowledge of Truth with thoughts from Hal B. Heaton and Trenton L. Hickman. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.